0: Welcome to the Soylent Green Podcast. Here at Soylent Green, our mission is to interview folks passionate about reducing the impacts of climate change in our fledgling little epoch, the Anthropocene. We are interested in building a community where we can learn from both sides of the aisle, scientists and citizens alike, who are making a positive impact in research and the lives of those they touch. Join us in another two-part special as we learn about the Lala people of Zambia in the Miombo forest and regenerative grazing from Andre Husney of Jacob Springs Farm in Boulder, Colorado.
1: Jacob Springs Farm is a diversified, beyond-organic farm located near Boulder, Colorado. They specialize in grass-fed proteins including eggs, pork, beef, lamb, and chicken, as well as grass-based raw milk. They also provide fruits and vegetables in season and delicious comb honey from their bees. Andre is passionate about regenerative grazing and is actively researching and developing techniques and technology for subsistence farmers worldwide. In close cooperation with the Zambezi, he created a co-op with nearly 1,200 small-scale farmers in Zambia, Africa to improve their productivity and sustainability. I guess my first question is, what is Zambezi?:
2: Yeah, so I worked for many years in nonprofits in agriculture and water throughout Africa. and I kind of became disillusioned with the entire project of aid and development. Partly because the goals aren't really defined. What does it mean to develop? Does that mean to take Africans and try to make them look more like Americans? It's not a project I really want to do because this isn't an ideal. And so, what ideal are we headed for? It's also not really clear that by giving people stuff, we can really help them that much. It seems like a lot of the problems are bigger and more structural. But then I met this incredible man who happened to be a king of a large tribe in Zambia. His name is Chibuchinga paramount chief of the Lala people in northwestern province of Zambia.
0: The history of the Lala people of Zambia is not well documented, but it is believed that they migrated to their current homeland in the central province of Zambia in the early 19th century. They were part of the Bemba-speaking people who moved into the region, and over time, the Lala developed their own distinct cultural and linguistic identity. Historically, the Lala were a matrilineal society with family ties and community relationships playing a significant role in their daily lives. They also had a rich oral tradition with stories and legends passed down through generations.
1: Today, many Lala people still live in rural areas and work as subsistence farmers, growing crops such as maize, beans, and cassava. They continue to maintain strong family ties and community relationships and traditional values such as respect for elders and hospitality remain important. However, the Lala have also faced challenges in adapting to modern life, such as lack of access to education and healthcare. Efforts are being made to address these issues, such as through the provision of mobile health clinics and initiatives to promote sustainable agriculture. Despite these challenges, the Lala people remain proud of their cultural heritage and continue to work towards a better future for their communities.
0: Keeping this in mind while we are introduced to the chief and the Lala people will lend context to their situation and can help us understand a different way of thinking about our place in this world and what it really takes to cherish and protect it. And he is just a remarkable human
2: being. And he basically said, Look, we don't need your information. We don't need your stuff. We just need partnership. We need people to partner with us to help us to export our products. If you really want to help a farmer, Buy their stuff (laughs) and pay a good price for it. You don't need to tell them what to do. You don't need to teach them how to compost. You just need to buy their stuff. So I was going in, quote unquote, teaching agriculture to some of the best farmers I've ever met, and they knew their environment and they knew their crops. Hundred miles from the nearest road, and they could talk about the carbon cycle and the water cycle and seeds and germination and nitrogen. And they're farmers by their existence as subsistence farmers. In a challenging environment, they've proved that they're good farmers. Yeah. And so they take some college grad white person and give them a two-week course on composting and then make them the expert. Yeah. (laughs) And that was me. So I had to go out there and be like, okay, let me teach you about composting. And they dutifully come and they sit there. I remember on like my second trip. I come and I go, okay, how are you guys? Good. Oh, cool. Nice to see you again. How are your compost piles that I taught you to make? And they all kind of look at their feet because nobody built a compost pile because they don't need a compost pile. Because here's (laughs) what they do they build a fence and at night they put their goats in there. And when their goats are within the fence, the goats have been collecting the plant matter and they deposit it within the fence and then they move the fence. And they put their garden there. Right. More (laughs) bioavailable compost. Oh, right. And now they have taken the plant material that we're recommending that they gather by hand and carry (laughs) and then like pick up the compost and carry. The goats are doing it and they're producing meat and they're fertilizing and dunging the ground. And then they just move the fence. It's like they have a system that didn't fit into our like little lecture series. Yeah. And is
1: that (laughs) something that you took with you now that you've run your own farm? They're kind of...
2: Well, yeah. I mean, like animals are actually a really cool part of... But then I talk to the nonprofit that I'm working for and they're like, oh, we don't do animals. That's Heifer International. That's a different NGO. Right. So we do composting. It's like, yeah, but the people don't need that. But they decide what people need. (laughs) Right. But yeah, but we're the white people. We decide what they need. (laughs) On my first trip, we're supposed to go and meet the local leadership and just kind of get their blessing. And this chief tells me, you are taking advantage of us because we're poor. And you're taking advantage of us to make us into beggars because we didn't think we needed anything. We didn't think we were poor. Now you come and you teach us that we're poor. And so you make us even poorer by making us into beggars because we have to chase your donations now. And so what you do is you take our dignity from us and you give us some little pieces of information and some little gifts. And you take our dignity and you put it on yourself and you make yourself a good person by taking our dignity. And that gut punched me. And I was like, what are we doing? We're selling a vision of development that we already know creates people on Zoom all day <laughs> <laughs> with anxiety who need to get outside. And yeah, they have their food in the fridge and they have, you know, a car outside in their driveway. But are they happier? Are they healthier? Are they benefiting the planet? So that really twisted my worldview.
0: And what'd you do with that information after that? I mean, I'm sure it's been a long process since then.
2: Well, it humbled me a lot. Yeah. So, I became a better listener and a better learner. Who do you listen to? So, you guys have like a lot of scientists and that's great because their perspective is powerful. Mm -hmm. But there's also people who just like don't have as much knowledge in that sphere, Mm -hmm. but they have been doing things. Mm -hmm. And there's a different kind of data that comes from that. So, like I listen to non-organic, non-regenerative farmers a lot because they have an expertise
0: Well, I imagine, like you said earlier, that they knew about carbon sequestration and they knew about all these different principles, but I also imagine their language, not only like the national language, but like words they use to describe it were probably not like quote unquote scientific. Well, check this
2: out. Okay. So in their tribe, they have the chief and the chief has a number of officers that like support the chief's work. Sometimes the chiefs are women now. And in different cultures, they've been women for a very long time. But in this particular culture, the chief, one of the officers that works with the chief is called the kapenda mubula. Kapenda mubula means the leaf counter, and this is essentially the forester for the tribe. The kapenda mubula, the leaf counter goes around and knows where all the important big trees are and marks them to the community like you cannot cut this tree down. This tree is important. If you walk with the kapenda mubula through the forest, it's like going to Costco, but you can't read the labels. And so and I got the privilege of getting to know one who knew all the scientific names. So, he's like, we call this msasa. And it's called Jul bernardia paniclata in scientific terminology. What's the and it fl- We don't have one because ah. we don't have, we don't know, that, but it's similar to a honey locust. Oh, okay. It's a flowering leguminous tree and it produces a lot of honey. And then here's Muchesa, which is Brachistigia speciformis. And here's Diaspirus patocana and we use the leaves of this to make a green dye. And if you chew this plant, when you have a bellyache, it'll go away. And there's like a wealth of knowledge there. And scientists are actually listening to that now. So for a long time, they came in as the experts. And now they're coming in and saying, oh, this Cappendambula has information that I want because it comes from a community who is intimately involved with their environment for a very long space of time and has actually valued these things.
1: Imagine if we put people in political power that are conservationists. And they're called counters.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I that, want that job.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like our uh, conservation departments where they exist are always scrounging for resources rather than like having the ear of the leader.
1: And ones yeah. that are not plagued by nepotism and corruption, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which are getting harder and harder to find. Yeah.
2: Well, there's nepotism and corruption in Africa, too but there's a different cultural value set. And we have something to learn from that. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So basically together as we figured out what do they do that's marketable and how can we make their production in line with whatever the market wants by people who are buying. Globally, right? Globally. Yeah. And then organize things so that that can happen. You know, it's really kind of the low hanging fruit for regenerative and sustainable type of agriculture because these people live in the forest they largely have not destroyed their environment their fields are very small and they're clear cut out of the forest they use them for a couple of years and then the forest closes right back in because they're so small and they get about 50% of their calories from foraging in the forest and their farmers only for 50% of their food so they're really living a very wild and kind of pure lifestyle already How can we augment that rather than replace their income with some other life way? And it turns out that honey is one of the things that they do very, very well. Their region is pristine and they have bees. They have the highest density of wild beehives anywhere in the world. They have a great biodiversity of different bee species, including stingless bees that they can harvest for honey and that they cultivate, as well as the Apis
0: mellifera honeybee. So they're uh, largely like relying on the wild population.
2: Right. Honeybee. And the European style of beekeeping is very interventionist. They actually do things to attract wild bees into their colonies. Mm -hmm. So one of those things is bees actually prefer, including European honeybees, prefer to be about 20 feet off the ground. They like to be up in high trees where they're not exposed to predators, where they don't have grass interfering with their flight patterns and stuff. So Zambian beekeepers keep their bees way up in trees because that's where the bees want to be. They're very aware of what the bees are doing all the time, partly because, you know, I started keeping bees when I was 12 and we're very reliant on our eyes. As Western beekeepers, we pull the honeycomb out and we look at it. Well, they don't have replaceable comb hives. Their hives are basically a tube of bark from a tree and it has a door at the front and a door at the back. So they can only look at the front comb and the back comb without destroying it. So they became extremely attuned to smell and to sound. So they can hear when a colony is happy or unhappy. They can smell it. They know where the next comb is brood or honey. I had to look at it. When I started cropping with them, I've been keeping bees for a long time at this point. And they were laughing at me. Well, why did you harvest the brood? I said, well, I couldn't see it. And they said, well, couldn't you hear it? <laughs> <laughs> so they're really, really good beekeepers. That's awesome. And they're really attuned. And they're breeding bees, too using wild populations so their honey is by default organic Mm -hmm. because there's no source of contamination within 100 miles yeah there's no commercial or industrial farming in that whole region there's one paved road the government of zambia agreed not to spray pesticides or herbicides so our roads get tons of herbicide application which totally messes with insect populations of course. Separates them. And then with water, because roads are big watersheds, right? They sheet water off, runs right through all that herbicide and washes it right into the waterways. So the government of Zambia cooperated with us because we're kind of a big thing in that area. And so we have organic honey. We have an area the size of New Jersey that is certified organic for honey production. That's incredible. So we started exporting wax first because that's higher value density. And then we got better and better at processing honey using their traditional methods and upgrading them to more food grade materials. And now we export hundreds of tons of honey from that region. Wow. And then we've expanded into some other crops that they're able to grow in small fields. And it's actually decreasing the amount of land that they have under cultivation. So because they're higher value crops, the most expensive part from a business point of view is the transport, getting stuff out of there. So we grow things that are high value per pound. Value density is the key. And they have to be non-perishables. Because they have to make it a long way through hot weather to get to market. So we found essential oils to be really highly value dense. You take a huge field of lemongrass, which grows by itself in that climate. We just have to spread it out so we can fill up a field with it. It's a perennial. We can then harvest it, process it, extract the lemongrass oil, which is like 2% of the mass. So we fill a couple buckets with lemongrass oil. And then we have all that biomass still. So we can actually put it back on the fields so we can enrich the soil. We can feed it to cattle. And then once it's been sort of digested through the steam distillation process, they can extract the nutrition from it very easily, efficiently, quickly. And then the cattle do really well. And then they produce fertilizer and that goes back on the field. So most of the biomass stays on the fields. So those fields can be intensely productive and they basically have two crops, hay essentially, and then essential oils. And then, the essential oils are so value-dense that one bucket of, say, geranium oil is worth like $8,000 because essential oils are expensive, how, right? How you big's buy, a
0: bucket?
2: That's a five-gallon. <laughs> so, gallon. I mean, it takes a lot of biomass to <laughs> right. make that because yeah. geranium oil is 0.2% extraction, rate, So it's much lower, but it's so valuable. It's worth, even if you don't live where there's a road, you can pick up that bucket and walk with it because that's enough income to really bring a whole village out of poverty for a year. And so those types of projects have been really effective. And what's really cool is they did it. I didn't really do it. I just partnered (laughs) with them figuring out some of the problems. And then they worked really hard, got it done, got the product made. We ship it and we saw it. And like shout out to our big customers, if it's okay, Lush Cosmetics Company. They're serious about promoting both regenerative and socially equitable projects. So they've actually been a big partner with us for like 15 years. That's and awesome. then our impact, so our communities have gone from like $75 a year annual income per family, which is real poverty, to around 2000 which is out of poverty, according to the United Nations. That's huge.
0: It's incredible that that amount is out of poverty, you know, that's uh, <laughs> right. really cool. It speaks to the lifestyle, I guess.
2: I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I went there thinking, oh, I'm going to help these poor people. But I go out there and it's like, wait a minute. You're living in the forest. You get up when you feel like it. I'm close with your family. Your family is all right there. Yeah. You sing some songs around the campfire in the morning. Yeah. You walk out into the forest. You go fishing in the creek. You go work in the fields for a few hours. They wake up early. They work hard, but they have a beautiful life. They get to be outside all the time. They build their own homes. They produce their own food. I'm like, I wish I could live like this. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to worry about taxes and like, health
0: insurance. <laughs> and with that, this will be my last episode of Solar <laughs> Green. I'm moving.
2: <laughs> but, you know, of course, they have problems. They don't have like a lot of political representation. Mm-hmm. Their central government yeah. does, isn't very responsive to their needs because they don't have infrastructure. Money. Right. Yep, like they mentioning. don't have roads. They don't have hospitals. Not Is enough capitalism problem. going on there. Come on. <laughs> right. Capitalism deficiency.
0: <laughs>
2: we gotta go capitalize on. Where's, where's the McDonald's? <laughs> yeah. So when they do have some cash, they're mm. able to actually make big difference. They're building schools. They're yeah. like buying bicycles to move stuff around. They don't need to have refrigerators a and oh. a Tesla, right? Actually, yeah, I have this funny <laughs> concept. Ripping the <laughs> they have been like, through the forests and Teslas. How would they recharge them? They would have to have like an ox with a, like a, a treading in a, a circle <laughs> to, <laughs> to charge the Tesla. <laughs> yes, that
0: would be beautiful.
2: <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that lifestyle actually really appealed to me. And that's actually why I got into farming because I wanted to live a lifestyle that was closer to the earth.
0: So when did you start farming then?
2: Yeah. So I started working on other farms because I love to be around it. You know, I didn't own a farm. I grew up in a suburb, but actually we were like the last house on the edge of the suburb and there was a farm behind us. And so I used to go volunteer. And then I started getting paid and got to drive a tractor, and <laughs> learned to irrigate and cut hay and milk a cow. And pretty soon I had my own chickens, my own bees. And I loved it, but I didn't see like a path into it. So I've studied water at CU, Water Resource Engineering. The rival school south of here.
1: (laughs) We'll just censor you. (laughs) I went to the school, which must not be named.
2: Yeah, so I studied water engineering. Actually, I, I was interested in agriculture and I thought about CSU, but I didn't see a way to get in.
1: Many people don't, yeah.
2: Because being a farmhand, which I had done, is not a good path to being a farmer.
1: It's little pay and hard work.
2: (laughs) Right. And you'll work for somebody else until they decide they're having a bad day and they fire you or something. So it was not a path I really saw. And it sort of happened by accident that I was able to get a farm in Boulder. I know that sounds crazy, but it was really a miracle. And that was in 2010. When I got the farm, that's when I sort of was like, can I do this? Is this real? (laughs)
1: So what's the story of how you got your farm then?
2: Well, the story was I couldn't afford to rent anywhere. (laughs) And I was seriously trying to find just anywhere to live, even just to rent. Right. And then I saw this property for sale. And then the for sale sign went down and there was like some weird conflict between the tenants and the owner. And the tenants kept taking down the for sale sign. So nobody (laughs) knew it was for sale. I love that. (laughs) There was all kinds of like legal battles over this property, but I was willing to take a risk because the thought of even home ownership was like out of reach for me. And I went in on it with my brother and I had other help and we were able to buy this farm. But The price that we paid for it, it was a small acreage. It's like six acres, but that seems pretty big for a small farm. But the crazy thing about this property is that it had been the headquarters of a much bigger farm that had gotten chopped up over the years. So I had the infrastructure to run a larger farm, had a, a workshop where I could pull a tractor in and pull the engine out and Tractor sheds where you could store equipment and a barn with a milking parlor in it and a vegetable field and two acres of pasture and several smaller structures. So it's like all we could do to get it. And so it's kind of a miracle. But then kind of holding on to it has been another miracle on a farmer's income, but gradually started farming other people's land, renting and begging and borrowing land. And then a couple of years ago, I got a land lease with the city of Boulder open space. So I got a little bit more stable tenancy on some land. Yeah. So 14 years, I've been kind of plugging away.
1: And how many acres do you have now?
2: I farm about 450 acres. And most of that's pasture. Most of it's pasture. So there's not a lot of like touches on some of that. Some of it's like upland, dry land. So we graze it when appropriate. In some of those places we graze every other year depending on availability of water and stuff. So some of it is not all that productive land, and that's okay, it's still productive.
1: Right, you know, the ecology evolved with grazers.
2: Right, and so the cool thing about some of that type of land that's dry land is we can actually use cattle to mimic what bison did on the Great Plains here. And so it's privately owned land, but it's basically preserved because as an ecosystem, All the right species are there. They're the same species that have been on the Western Great Plains forever, right?
1: A publication written by our dear friend, soil chemist Jim Ippolito, describes the benefits and potential downfalls of management-intensive grazing. This study was monitored for over a decade to decipher the effects of grazing on soil health. Ideally, the goal is to maintain the balance of moderate defoliation followed by periods of rest, ranging from approximately 21 to 40 days and leaving at least four inches of living plant matter to regrow. In doing this, the researchers found an increase of 125% in microbial activity. It also improved the soil structure, increased water infiltration, and increased nutrient cycling. However, stocking density, or the number of animals per unit area, plays a large role in how successful this management can be. Overgrazing can lead to a breakdown in soil structure, especially when soils are wet and have a high clay content which may lead to compaction and limit root growth.
2: We can actually keep it in productive agriculture and still be a form of preservation
0: of a natural ecosystem.
1: Mutually beneficial that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And so have you noticed a change then, like from when you started to the way it looks now?
2: Yeah. A lot of the farmland that I started farming was really good before picture. Mm -hmm. And then some of it's turned into really good after so yeah. we've been able to restore parts of it. And grazers are an excellent way to do that. And we can restore vegetation. We can change the composition of grassland species that are there. would have drastic increases in the amount of ground nesting birds, mammals, insects, predators then coming in, especially aerial predators, but also like coyotes, because now there are mice and there are ground nesting birds to hunt. And then some of the land is more traditional bottom land, cropland. And so we do Grazing there also, but also hay. And then we also have small grains programs. So we have a combine and we grow wheat and barley and pinto beans and lentils and stuff like <laughs> that on those acres. So that's much smaller. That's like 30 acres out of the 450 is in crops in one acre of vegetables.
0: Okay. Well, wow, we had a lot to unpack here in post all of what we just talked about reminded me dimly of some concepts that I had heard before, and I'm lucky enough to have a community of people who helped me cultivate ideas for this podcast, and we just want to give you a quick background of a lot of people we were able to find online and relate it to something that my housemate said, who is an adjunct professor at CSU in the broader social work field, though she teaches more nuanced and specific subjects that I can't recall the name of at the moment. Sorry. Anyway, here goes. The exploitation of rural and tribal African cultures is a complex and multifaceted issue that's been ongoing for centuries. In many cases, these cultures have been historically marginalized and exploited by colonial powers, and this legacy of exploitation continues to shape their current relationship with the global community.
1: In the case of the Lala people of Zambia, who are primarily subsistence farmers and pastoralists, Their way of life has been challenged by a range of factors, including environmental degradation, climate change, and economic pressures. As a result, many Lala communities have been forced to rely on outside sources of support, including Western countries and NGOs, because as Andre said, they lack broader representation.
0: One of the key ways in which the Lala communities have been exploited is through the imposition of Western development models that prioritize economic growth and industrialization over traditional agricultural practices and environmental conservation. These models often fail to take into account the unique needs and perspectives of local communities leading to social and environmental disruption in the form of cultural assimilation or ethnic cleansing and thinking they need something like a class on composting, i.e. westernizing their agricultural practices.
1: Additionally, many Lala communities have been subject to land grabs and displacement as multinational corporations and governments seek to exploit natural resources in the region. This has led to significant conflicts between local communities and external actors. NGOs and other external organizations have often stepped in to provide support to Lala communities, but these interventions can also be problematic. For example, many NGOs have been criticized for imposing their own agendas and priorities on local communities, rather than listening to and supporting the people's goals and aspirations. Overall, the exploitation of rural and tribal African cultures like the Lala is a complex issue that requires a nuanced and context-specific approach. It is important to recognize the historical and systematic factors that have contributed to their current situation and to work collaboratively with the local communities to identify sustainable and equitable solutions.
0: Now, we can also relate this to a story that hits a little closer to home, which is that of Colorado State University opening a campus in Todos Santos, Mexico in 2015 with the aim of promoting research, education, and community engagement in the region. The campus was established in partnership with Trace Santos, a development project led by the prominent housing developer Jim R. Mulvihill, a relatively obscure figure. He's been criticized for the development of several projects like Jack's Point, New Zealand, a luxury resort in the Bahamas, and the village in Lake Tahoe, Arizona, all of which have drawn concern for their environmental impacts. The project in Todos Santos includes a hotel, residential units, and commercial space, as well as the CSU campus. While the project was initially touted as a boon for the local economy, there has been some opposition from environmental and community groups, even sparking a film to be made about it called Patrimonio, concerned about the impact of such accelerated development on the town's cultural and natural resources. An article called U.S. universities accused of colonialism in Mexico over a new campus highlights concerns raised by local residents and activists that the development has had negative impact on the local environment and community and has benefited the interests of wealthy foreigners rather than the local people. The article also examines the broader issue of American universities expanding into foreign countries, which critics argue perpetuates colonialism and reinforces inequalities in global higher education. It's interesting to note that a local paper here in Fort Collins did a piece raising concerns about this move by the university back in 2016, but recently released an article full of praise in February of this year. A quick search of Todos Santos now makes it look like an influencer's paradise. One of the first videos returned shows a van life couple playing tour guides around the town, and one can barely find anything on the local people, history, or culture. Despite
1: opposition from some groups, the CSU campus has been in operation for several years. CSU Toto Santos Center offers programs in sustainable agriculture, environmental studies, and public health, as well as Spanish language and cultural immersion programs. The project continues to evolve with partnerships and initiatives aimed at promoting sustainable development and community well-being. One such example is a class designed by Ruth Alexander in the College of Liberal Arts called History, Community, and Environment in Mexico. The class aims to immerse students in the local community and teach the history, culture, and perceptions within Toto Santos and the surrounding areas. Through in-depth oral history interviews, with diverse groups of residents, including fishermen, wildlife conservationists, ranchers, farmers, doctors, teachers, business owners, and artists.
0: I also wanted to take a quick moment to plug this book that I will attempt to read. I'm terrible at being able to sit down and actually read something. Too much neurodivergence going on. The Revolution Will Not Be Funded is a collection of essays and edited by Insight, Women of Color Against Violence, a national activist organization based in the United States. The book examines the impact of philanthropy and nonprofit organizations on social justice movements and argues that reliance on these institutions can undermine the effectiveness of grassroots organizing. The authors argue that the philanthropic sector is inherently tied to structures of power and inequality and that it often co-ops and commodifies social justice movements for its own purposes. The book critiques the nonprofit industrial complex and its role in shaping social movements, arguing that it can create a system of professional activists who prioritize funding and institutional sustainability over the needs and priorities of communities. The book includes case studies and analyses of various social justice movements, including feminist organizing, anti-violence work, and community-based initiatives. The authors offer alternatives to the dominant philanthropic model, such as community-led funding and support networks and emphasize the importance of collective action and grassroots organizing in creating systemic change. Overall, the book provides a critical examination of the intersection of philanthropy and social justice, and offers insights and recommendations for building more effective and sustainable movements.
2: You will not be able to stay home, brother not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised.
1: That's it for part one. Stay tuned for part two of this riveting conversation with Andre Husni. We're going to explore how he transposes the ecological ideas and cultural norms of Zambia onto his farm in Boulder, Colorado. It's our pleasure to bring you this content. We received a lot of positive feedback so far, and that prods us to expand our little community we've been cultivating. Fresh ideas and collaboration are key to a functioning community. Reach out with any suggestions or projects you would want to work on. We'd love to hear from you. And if you feel like you can, we do have a Patreon and a Buy Me A Coffee account, and would be eternally grateful for your support. We are currently working on getting some merch and other perks up for our continuing supporters. We totally understand if you can't, but please consider leaving us a review or rating on your listening platform of choice. We appreciate your interest and support of the ideas and practices we're trying to make available to a broader audience. And we're excited to keep this momentum up. Thanks for listening.